happen. And uh, I have had the privilege to know Casey for the last four years, or eight years, Ryan for the last four. I got to marry them. I baptized Ryan. I've been a part of so much of their life. I've been in small groups. I've talked all kinds of politics. Casey's got lots of opinions on that. <laughs> Feminism, all of it. And we've had uh, religion, of course. It is me. And so it's been a real joy to have our lives intersect, and who knows when they will again, but we just know that you're going to do great things down in North Carolina. So thanks for being a part of our church, and we're going to miss you. <laughs> we're in the fourth week of a series in the book of Proverbs. Uh, the series is called Choose Wisely, and it's all about wisdom, which you might expect uh, from the series title. And what we're talking about, really, when we speak of wisdom, is three concepts. And we're going to refer to these throughout the series, and we're going to come back to them again and again. But according to the Bible, the wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord contains three concepts. It contains humility, which is a soft-hearted attitude towards God. It contains pursuit, where you are pursuing God, what he says, who he is. You're pursuing what he says for your life. And then third, submission. When you understand what he says, or at least to the ability that you understand what he says, you do what he says. Humility, pursuit, and submission. That is what we looked at in the first week. In week two, we looked at the nature of foolishness, and we saw that there are three types of really fools. And the Proverbs talks about them. The first is the simple, the naive person. The second one is the mocker, the one who doesn't care what God says. And the third is the fool, the one who hates God and goes his own way. So the book of this, the whole point of this series is to choose wisely, to not be the fool, but to have a heart of humility, a heart of pursuit, a heart of submission. And if you were to take this kind of attitude into your different areas of your life, it would transform those areas of your life. And so that's what we're talking about for these next weeks. Last week, we started to apply wisdom to the relationship that we have between us and God. And we saw that God is an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing creator who loves us and who we show love to and we love one another. This week, we're going to start to apply this concept of wisdom, and we're going to start to apply it to our family relationships. So specifically, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the marriage relationship, and we're going to look at the parenting-child relationship. And you know, I've been thinking about this a lot this week as I'm talking about it. Um, I've been thinking about what I've observed in my own life. I won't say I've observed it in your life, although I'm sure you'll observe it in your own. Uh, I've noticed, though, in my own life that it is often easiest to treat the worst the people who we are closest to. Can I say that in a way that you could understand? It is easiest to treat the worst the people that we are closest to. Does this make sense? I think this is for two reasons. First off, you can't keep a facade up for long, right? So many of us, when we started to date, you know, I started to date and I was getting to know my wife and I could keep up a facade going for a while, although I'm not the facade type of guy. But after a while, the person you are closest to sees you. And I think that's what a lot of us fear, isn't it? That somebody will see us and not accept us. And so we try to hide who we are. For many of you, your greatest fear is having someone know who you are and not accepting it. But we can't keep up a facade forever. We can't keep up a good image 
forever. And home is the place, family is the place where we leave work or we leave all those other things at school and we go home and that's where we can put our guard down. So it's often easiest to treat the worst the people we are closest to. The second reason why it's easiest to treat the worst the people you are closest to is because you burden those people with your hopes and your dreams and your desires in a way that they cannot fully sustain. Let me explain what I mean by this. When you get married, you have all kinds of hopes, dreams, and desires. When you go to the uh, hospital and you have that baby born for the first time and that baby comes out and you're holding it, you have all kinds of hopes and dreams and desires for that child. What happens When the child grows up and their hopes, dreams, and desires do not match up with your hopes, dreams, and desires for them. What happens when in your relationship with your spouse, the hopes, dreams, and desires you had for your life are not enhanced, but are actually muddied, you know, mired down. And it seems like getting to your hopes, dreams, and desires is like going through molasses. Yeah? We burden our kids and we burden our spouses with hopes, dreams, and desires that are not fair oftentimes. I'm going to preview what I'm going to talk. I'll talk about this more in a little bit. But do we really get married or should we really get married? Should we really have kids so that they can bring us to a place of greater joy in our hopes, dreams, and desires? Are they the means by which we get to our ends. Does this make sense? If you approach your relationships and your family this way, where your family members are a means to your end, you're always going to have this in a significant way. Significant way. And there is a better way. And of course, it's what God says, right? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to go back to those ideas of your hopes, dreams, and desires in both those instances. But what we're looking at this morning is the book of Proverbs. What we're looking at is the relationship between a husband and a wife and the relationship between a parent and a child. So let's just go ahead and start from the beginning. The relationship between a husband and a wife. For each of these two concepts, I have got two concepts. Two concepts for husband and wife, two concepts for parent and child. I'm just going to give them to you and we're going to get through it. Number one. The relationship between a husband and a wife. There is something in a marriage relationship that breaks you and there is something that sustains you and makes your marriage work. I'm talking in broad terms and I'm going to share with you the one that breaks you first. And it is simply put this. Selfishness destroys marriage. Selfishness destroys marriage. There are two very well-known verses in the book of Proverbs. Uh, If you've been in church your whole life, you'll surely recognize them. If you haven't and you're reading them for the first time, you'll just be humored by how ridiculous they are. Um, And they talk about the marriage relationship. But just remember, just because something is funny does not mean that it doesn't have a serious point. And so here's what it says. Better to live on the corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife, yeah? Yeah. Number two, a quarrelsome wife is like the dripping, dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Yeah? Now, 
If Casey was here, you know, who we just said goodbye to, the feminist, she would say, why does the Bible always talk about the wife, you know? To which you are right, I would say to Casey, it's just the culture and you've got that dynamic going on. But nevertheless, to be in a relationship with man or woman who is quarrelsome is not going to be good or fun. Heck, to just have a friendship with someone who's always at you, quarrelsome, is not going to be fun. But let's start to think a little deeper about things for a moment and start to reflect on what leads to being quarrelsome. Being quarrelsome is fueled by selfishness. And selfishness is fueled by a sense of entitlement that says, I deserve better than you are doing for me. Yeah? I would suggest to you that in your marriage relationship, if you go to your spouse and tell her or him, I deserve better, that that will not be fuel for intimacy. Yes? I deserve a kitchen that is cleaner. I deserve more intimacy physically. I deserve to have this be done. Because the honeydew list has not been done on time. Yeah? I deserve, I deserve I deserve. Quarrelsomeness starts with selfishness, a selfishness that looks at your partner and says, you have not delivered for me. Yeah? You have not delivered for me. I can remember a few years back, I'm a real regular listener to a preacher. His name is Andy Stanley. I listen to him all the time. And he was preaching this sermon on marriage. And his major point in this sermon was this, you know, uh, three-word little statement. You owe me, oh, four-letter. You owe me, me, nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, gee. It's more nerve-wracking than you think to be up here. You owe me nothing. You owe me nothing. It was like this light bulb went on my head. And I started to think about it, and I consider myself to be a pretty good guy, you know? Never been pulled over by the, well, no trouble with the police, you know? I went to Christian school. I didn't get in trouble there, and it was easy to get in trouble there, you know? I consider myself a pretty decent guy. But I started thinking about, I heard this uh, sermon by Andy Stanley, you owe me nothing. And I thought, man, that is not how I approach my relationship with Sarah, I think she owes me things. She owes me a clean house. I want it really clean. She owes me dinner. She owes me some other things. (laughs) She owes me. And I started thinking about it. And so that night, I listened to that sermon, it kind of shook me up, and that night I thought, what if I treated my wife like she owes me nothing? Not through selfishness, but you owe me nothing. And I started to write down all the things I am grateful for her that she does. Not thinking through, which is so much more natural for me, honestly, to think through all the ways that I'm not happy, but I started to write down all the ways that she does this for all these things for me, you owe me nothing. And then I wrote her this note and I gave it to her. 
And I'd like to say that ever since, things have been awesome, and they, they pretty much are awesome, but you know something about me? I always drift to thinking, you owe me something. But things go really awesome when I don't have a you owe me something attitude. Does this make sense? You owe me nothing. If you come into your relationship with the attitude, you owe me something, you know what your relationship starts to look like? A waiter and a client, yeah? A couple years ago, I was at one of my very favorite restaurants. It's called the Maple Tree Inn. It's got unlimited maple syrup, unlimited pancakes. And I've been there a dozen times or so. And every time it's been great, except one time, it was not great. I got seated pretty quick, but then I swear it's like our waitress just forgot about us, you know? And I've learned something about eating. This is going to be gross, but the quicker you shove it in, the more of it you can eat, yeah? And when you go somewhere all you can eat, the quicker you get it in, the more you can eat. So, oh gosh, you're all like grossed out by me. I'm working on it, all right? So, um, anyway... I only had like four or five pancakes that day because I started to fill up because it took so long to get the more, more pancakes, you know, and I wanted to eat like eight to ten pancakes. So, um, and then at, at the end of the meal, it always comes a time they bring you your bill and you have a decision to make, don't you? It's called a tip, you know? So I tipped bad and I never tip bad. I'm like a 20% guy no matter what happens. And I tipped kind of bad and I left and I was angry. And I thought about that experience when I listened to that sermon. It's like, in my marriage, am I tipping my wife when I think she performs well? Or am I loving her independent of performance? And I thought about it a lot. Love that is based on performance is not love. Isn't that right? Love that is based on on performance is not love. And so selfishness destroys our marriage because we have hopes and dreams and desires. And when our spouse meets them, we give her tips, him tips. And yet if, and when they don't do well, you know, you know how that goes. But that dynamic will destroy your marriage. Marriage is fueled, rather, by what the Proverbs talks about in kind of an obscure way. And I'm going I'm to show you how I got here in a moment. But marriage is fueled, rather, by selflessness. Selflessness fuels intimacy in marriage. And selflessness is fueled by fearing the Lord. In fact, selflessness really, in a true sense, only comes when we acknowledge that there is something in someone greater than ourselves whom we are accountable to. For if we are our highest standard, then everybody else will only be a tool to meet our standard. But selflessness, on the other hand, starts with a fear of the Lord, a humility which says, I am not the highest thing, a humility that leads to a pursuit and a pursuit that leads to submission. Why would anyone be selfless? 
You'll notice in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30, that the text says this. Now, the context, before I read it, the context of this section is a really well-known part of the Old Testament. In Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, that describes the ideal woman, the ideal wife. And she's amazing, of course. She gets up super early. She makes food. She is industrious and makes money through her industrious things. She, she can sew and she sells her stuff she sews. And uh, she keeps the books for her husband's job. She can do anything. Perhaps some of us might read that and think, who could possibly ever meet up to this Proverbs 31 woman, you know? But nonetheless, at the end of this little section on the Proverbs 31 woman, it says this. She's also beautiful. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What I think the book of Proverbs is doing, and I think it at a pretty high level. In in other words, I'm pretty sure I'm right. What Proverbs is doing is it is telling us in the very beginning, Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And at the very end, it's giving us this ideal woman. So it's bookends, right? On one hand, on the other. And at the very end, what is extolled greatest of this woman who can do anything? You know, she sucks, she, she cooks, she, shows, she sews, she gives money to the poor. You know, she does all this stuff. What is extolled above everything else is her fear of the Lord. Her fear of the Lord. Because there is a standard that we are accountable to in our lives that fuels our selflessness that goes beyond our hopes and our dreams and our desires. There is something we live for beyond our hopes, our dreams, and desires if we fear the Lord. And that thing is fueled by the selflessness of God that we learn later, thousand years after this is written, through what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in John, uh, in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. By this shall all men know that you love me, that you love one another. I command you, love one another as I have loved you. Have you heard of the golden rule? You know, treat others the way you wish to be treated. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say treat others the way you want to be treated. The golden rule always gets me in trouble at Christmas time. Yeah. I buy my wife the things I want. Yeah. That's the joke. Okay. So the golden rule always gets me in trouble, but the golden rule is not what Jesus says, is it? Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says this in John chapter 13, the night before his crucifixion, when he will die in selfless choice agony by his own volition for the fate and the benefit of humanity. Paul applies this very principle the way that Christ has loved us to our marriage relationship. He does it in Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's on page 949. Page 949. Paul, who was a hater of Christians and who radically and immediately changed his mind about the faith of the Christians, after meeting Jesus himself after his resurrection, 
while he was on the way to kill Christian, to gather Christians up in the city of Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to be killed, was completely transformed by the sacrificial, selfless love of Jesus. And he wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 5, and he applied it to our marriage relationship. And here's what he says. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a section on marriage, and it begins by telling us that both the man and the woman are to submit in the relationship to each other. In other words, the marriage relationship that will look the best is the marriage relationship that the wife says to the husband in this relationship, your hopes, dreams, and desires are more important than my hopes, dreams, and desires. And the husband looks back at the wife who says that and says right back at her in this relationship, your hopes, dreams, and desires in this relationship matter more to me than my hopes, dreams, and desires. Do you see that? Submission competition, in other words. How can I submit and selflessly love you so that your hopes and dreams and desires are met? Do you see how radically vulnerable this will make you when you get married? The biblical ideal is that you look in the eyes of the person who is so wonderful, so beautiful, so amazing, and who lets you down so often, because every marriage goes like that in times and has times of the other way. No marriage is like this. Every marriage I've ever known is like this. But the better ones look like this. (laughs) This is weird. (laughs) You see what I mean? No marriage is perfect, but when imperfections come, the spouse who's on the downside on the receiving end says, your hopes, dreams, and desires matter more to me than my hopes, dreams, and desires. It makes you incredibly vulnerable if you love your spouse as Christ has loved you. This is why I will do all in my power to teach my boys very good dating and learning to get to know skills before they get married. I have a bunch to say about that. That's not what this sermon's about. Love begins in the marriage with submission, submission competition. And notice how Paul applies this same principle. In chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to him, her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. I always love this passage of scripture because it says that when we love another person well, especially our spouse, their beauty to others is enhanced. Have you ever been around a husband that always has a disparaging remark about that person, the other person? Other people start to look down on that person. It shouldn't be this way, but it happens, right? But the husband who loves their spouse well, the wife that loves their husband well, that person looks more attractive and more beautiful. Just as we look more attractive and beautiful because of the love that Christ has had for us. Marriage is not about the golden rule, treat others as you have been treated. Marriage is about the rule that Christ gave us that supersedes every other rule in all of the Bible. For this one rule is 
the whole shooting match. It's what all of this book is about. <laughs> Love one another as Christ has loved you. Do you see how this rule, this law, love one another as Christ has loved you, is singular, and it is not very complicated, and it is very, very, very demanding. For if you are to keep this law, love one another as Christ has loved you, it starts to shape how you should interact with every single person you ever come into contact with, right? The question is not what is fair anymore. The question is how can I selflessly love this person as Christ has loved me? My suggestion to you is our marriages would be transformed if we did this. If we didn't put our hopes, dreams, and desires on our spouse like a burden, if we didn't look to our spouse to meet our emotional deficits, but if we were able to understand and receive by faith the love that Christ has for us, we could find our love, we could find our acceptance, we could find our approval from God, and we would have the burden lifted from us so that we could love each other as Christ has loved us. But the family dynamic is not made up of only a marriage, is it? For many of us, who have been in marriage, and even if you're not married and you don't have kids, obviously these principles apply to you. We're talking about love. But for many of us who have been married, it doesn't end there, as we're hearing in this worship center this morning, right? Kids eventually come, right? Kids come. I can remember I'd been married five years before we had kids. That was a great decision. Should have made it seven. But anyway, (laughs) we'd been married five years. We had two dogs. We lived in Dallas, Texas. Every night we took those dogs for a walk. I loved those dogs. The night my firstborn son was born, I looked at him and everything changed, yeah? And like, this thing is a living, breathing human being, just like 20 inches long. And all of a sudden, we brought him home, and I was so exuberant, and I was so tired. I was just so tired all the time. It was like I went from liking those silly pug dogs and then I wanted nothing to do with them. I've been working on my attitude towards animals. I'm getting better for all of you who know. We still have a dog, not those ones, and I bathed him twice in the last month, so I'm getting better. But anyway, we had that little baby. We moved up here within a month. Uh... I started working, I graduated from school, I got ordained, we moved here, all in the same month, I married my sister, all in the same month, my wife came down with a terrible case of some, some case of something that women get after their pregnancy, I don't even know what it's called, I do, but I don't want to say it, and I feel like that's respectful to her in some way. Now, and I remember one night, we were laying in bed. And Walton had been asleep for like 15 minutes, and uh, then he started to cry, you know. And it was like the kind of cry as a parent you can just tell. It's not like, oh, I'll just give him a pacifier and this will be done. It's the kind of crying that means hours of work, you know. And I remember thinking to myself and turning to Sarah and verbalizing my thoughts, and I told her, I can't do this, I'm just too tired. And then I started to cry. And I never cry. 
And my wife said, be a man. (laughs) And then I did sort of in my sissy way. And I just remember thinking like, man, I felt like Sarah and I had such a great relationship. And then all of a sudden we had kids and we still had a good relationship, but it was like everything was 10 times more complicated, you know? And I've heard people say often like, well, we're not having a good time, but we're decided to have a kid. We think that will help. Like, (laughs) I think you're wrong, you know? And all this stuff's going on in your head. But I've really never met a parent, and this is the truth. I've never met a parent, and I know they're out there. I watch the news every so often, like once a year. I know they're out there that parents that don't love their kids and don't care for them, but I've never met a parent that would say, I don't care about my kids and I just want what's best for myself. We're all trying to do what's best for our kids. And yet, for so many of us, even though we want what's best for them, we do not always set a place of safety and health for our kids that will catapult them into adulthood. And the Proverbs have stuff to say about this, too. Lucky us, yeah? It has a lot to say about this, and I'm just going to give you two quick principles, and they're going to be really quick. First, the, first relation, the relationship between parents and children is the first thing that you need to see from the Proverbs is that personal godliness is the foundation for parenting. This old idea of do what I say, not what I do, and pay, this just does not work in parenting. If you want your kids to have something, you have to model it. There's no guarantee that if you model it, they'll do it, but it does not work to say, do what I say, not what I do. You want your kids to eat healthy, you got to eat broccoli too. You want your kids to love the Bible, then you have to read and love the Bible. If you want your kids to exercise, you have to exercise. Personal godliness is the foundation for parenting, and personal godliness sets a secure environment. Listen to what the book says, Proverbs says. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. For their children, it will be a refuge. It will be a safe place. We cannot give what we do not have. We cannot give what we do not have. And I, I've never like heard this verbally from parents, but like, well, I've heard this part. You know, I just want my kids to have it different. I want them to have a different experience than I had. And that is great. But what I want for you as parents, and I want it for you as parents because I want it for you for your kids, what I want for you is to follow and to have those changes in your life so that your kids will have those modeled and have a better shot at those too, you know? Do you want, do you want your kids to have great Christian friends? I don't know any Christian family that doesn't. Then you need to de- take time to develop great Christian friends. Do you want... Your kids to have a love for the Word of God that changes the way they act, then you need to have a love for the Word of God that leads you to read it and then to talk to your kids about why you're doing the things you're doing based on what the Word of God says and your fear of God, right? Humility and, and pursuit and submission. You need to show them, you know, when your kids ask you for something that costs a lot of money and you say, well, we don't have the money, but we've made other decisions, let them into that process, Let them in. Show them what it looks like to follow God for you in every area of your life. And it'll be a refuge, a safe place. Second, this one's the best one. 
Discipline. Discipline is something that Proverbs talks a lot about. And discipline is an act of love that gives life. Discipline that does not, is not done by, le- by love never gives life. You know, I think sometimes people think about Proverbs and they think about discipline and they think about Christianity. They think about, they just think about hitting things, you know, hitting the kids, getting a switch out and spanking them, you know. I was at a conference once and one of the speakers said, you know, it's like our culture today is going downhill. They just don't spank enough anymore. And the whole audience erupted in applause and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is weird. Like you just want to go around hitting things, you know. I'm not saying spanking is wrong, but it's not worthy of applause, you know. I hit my kids too, you know. just doesn't make sense to me. Discipline is not about do you spank or don't you spank. Discipline is about giving an act of love that leads to life in which we give boundaries to our kids where they should and should not go, where the consequences when they do not go there outweigh their will of not going there. Does this make sense? It can look like spanking, I suppose, if that's your thing. It can look like time out. It can look like a lot of different ways. But discipline needs to set a fence that, is, that dictates the terms of what is inbounds and what is out of bounds. Inbounds and what is out of bounds. The Proverbs talk a lot about this. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Proverbs 22.6 says, Start your children off in the way that they should go, and even when they grow old, they will not depart from it. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights in. Discipline. It is the responsibility of the parents to instill in the life in their kids through discipline, through telling them no to the things that are not good for them and then making it so. I'll never forget. It was one of the times I was most attracted to my wife in my whole life. Walton did not want to eat his broccoli and my wife sat there with him for two hours. Two hours. I just went and watched TV. Two hours. My wife's will is like iron. And her love never wavers, right? But did you see what Proverbs 19, 18, maybe Jerry, we can go back to it. When we look at discipline, in discipline for there is hope, for when we do it, we save our kids from death, from destruction. Did you know our kids, like ourselves, we're not all that different in some ways. Our kids will destroy themselves with their own desires if we allow them to, won't they? Just like you and I will destroy ourselves with our desires, and this will not lead to our freedom, and it will not lead to their freedom. (laughs) In fact, without discipline, we all destroy ourselves with our desires. We destroy ourselves financially, relationally, physically, and spiritually. The book of Proverbs pleads with us as parents Discipline your kids, for in that there is life. Set boundaries that are good for them and let them know that your no means no. No means no.
It occurs to me that all throughout the Bible that God and Jesus in, his, in the gospel accounts, that they relate the relationship that we have with God as a relationship that between a husband and a wife and a relationship between a father and a son. Think about it with me. Just in the passage we read in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul relates the marriage relationship to the relationship of Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride of Christ. Think about it with me in one of the more famous prayers in all the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. How did he teach us to pray? Who art, hallowed be your name, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know the rest, most likely. The relationship that we have to God is like the relationship of a son to a father. It is like the relationship of a spouse to her husband. And as we consider the love that God has shown us and the love that he continues to show us. My prayer for us this morning is that we would model it in our individual families, that we would model selfless and sacrificial love that leads to us doing for ourselves, pursuing God ourselves, and then giving boundaries that will lead to safety in our homes. And to that end, as we go to communion, let me pray for you that it would be so. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the love that you've shown us. Shown us in the most powerful and overwhelming way through the sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ on the cross that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us pray that in our marriages and in our parenting that we would show this sacrificial love to our spouses and our kids for their joy and for their safety. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.